Hello and welcome to another edition of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin here with my soon-to-be in Madison, Wisconsin co-host Teos Abadia. Hey Teos. Hey, I, How's it I going? can't. It's here. The week is here. I can't believe it. We're going to Game Hole. It's gonna be awesome. Uh, I'm excited. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. And I had a moment this weekend that I think yeah. you would particularly appreciate. I um, you mm-hmm. know, you get develop a reputation amongst your friends. So the mom of a friend of my son's calls me and says, I need help. <laughs> my youngest is going to join their D&D club. You need to help them. <laughs> I'm like, sure. Tutoring? So you're you're basically tutoring. For, for D&D, yeah. yeah. And so they, they came over and we spent yeah, yeah. Uh, a couple hours together. Uh, first reviewing what D&D is all about, which they had played once before. So they had a pretty good grasp, but I think I was just helping sort of smooth that, you know, f- that feeling of competence around it and what the game's all about. And then then, then they were like, can you help me make a character? And I was like, let's go. Let's do this. So we made a druid. Let's do this. Yeah, because yeah. they had the starter set, which doesn't have the druid, but they wanted to play a druid. So I'm like, well, here's the player's handbook. Let's go through this. And uh, and we had a blast. You know, we we... But it was that reminder of like, wow, this game is surprisingly complicated when you're new, right? Like, there's a lot, mm-hmm. a lot. Like, making a character is no sim. One does not simple walk into making a character. <laughs> it's like you, uh, no, yeah, yeah, it's wild. And then try to do it with five players or six players all at once who are even less familiar with the game and explain the different parts to yeah. them while you're doing it. Yeah. yeah, it's not not an easy thing. Which is why we always, I always say a basic version of the game would not be bad. Not bad at all. And my son said, like, just use D&D Beyond. I was like, well, you know, I kind of want, because I want him to learn the game, like I wanted to do it on paper. And we, and the thing is, you get into D&D Beyond and there are so many options and choices from so many different books that that itself can be really overwhelming. So I, I, and I told him, I said, there are lots of other books there and you may want to later revamp your character and use other whatevers and. People you play with maybe like you should have gone with blah. Just we're gonna make a core book character, you know. So you yep. understand the yep. foundation of the options and the game, and we did that. It's fun. It shocked awesome. no one when he chose criminal as his background. <laughs> it is. It is a. It is a good background. Lots Popular. of lots of good stuff there, <laughs> uh, mechanically, and lots of good role playing. So. Speaking of criminals, we have a lot of listeners out there, <laughs> and uh, so we like to take questions and comments from them, and we sort of didn't get to a lot of them last week uh, because we had Alex Kammer talking about GameholeCon, so we are going to get to a little few more this week, starting with the Mathemagician via our Patreon Discord. Uh, this question is inspired by why don't they make short modules anymore, which we answered uh, previously. So Mathemagician's question is, we learned recently that classes are content, and it was said by a designer at Wizards of the Coast. <laughs> Do you see a near future now that Wizards owns D&D Beyond of selling new classes on that platform without an associated hardcover adventure? Would it then make sense to collect them into a hard copy anthology at a later date? And what about subclasses? Would any content work this way and then the mathematician answers their own question by saying well they want D to be a brand a piecemeal approach will not make a lot of sense to them 
because it will cost managerial time for something that isn't a coherent part of their bigger themes. Uh, they've resisted adding new classes, so that would be unlikely. Subclasses may be slightly more likely to be sold online, but would not be picked up in an anthology because folks are not going to want to spend more on, quote, old content. Uh, so I think that I'm I, stepping down as host and a uh, mathematician gets the job. <laughs> yeah. So, so I, I've Good. got something to say, but it's not terribly profound. So... Uh, if you have anything to add there, Teos. I mean, I think that the the, the answer that Mathematician provided is really very good. Um, that overall, the emphasis is don't get distracted by things that, that are perfectly great for a role-playing game uh, to do. Any other role-playing game company, the idea of like releasing a package of subclasses or even classes could make a lot of sense. And it wouldn't necessarily have to be part of a big adventure or a big setting book or anything like that. Uh, the way we saw that recent monster book, right? That that's just kind of a PDF that's out there. That if you think about it long term, will probably get lost into the ether, right? Years from now, someone will be saying like, well, you know, back in five V, there was this fairy monster thing. I don't know. I don't think it was ever a PDF. It'll just get lost, right? But that's not the real focus. While they may play around with that, and they may at times get distracted from their goal and create little one-offs like that. In general, I think they are better off focused on big brand motives, right? They want things like tyranny of dragons, things that when somebody says the word, lots of gamers and people go, oh yeah, I remember that, right? Tomb of Annihilation, oh yeah, I remember that. And and that's that's the goal, really. They may get distracted, they may forget their own goals, but that's what they want. Mm -hmm. While I hate this idea of grouping generations into generation X and the silent generation and all this, because there are different types of people with different generations. Uh, there are, we do see trends as mm -hmm. time passes. And one of those trends is how and why and where people will spend money. And if wizards of the coast is starting to learn, I'm not saying this is true. I'm just giving this as a possible example that people are more likely to buy something for a dollar 17 times online than spend $17 to buy one thing online. Wouldn't they be smarter to mm -hmm. sell things online $1 at a time, 17 times yeah. to get 17 different subclasses as opposed to this one book, which is going to cost more to make. And so I don't know, but I imagine I'm hoping from a business perspective that they're keeping track of these things. And if it turns out that it is better for them and it does spread the game more to do something like sell things digitally, individually, piecemeal, then that they would do that because yeah. that's what people are voting for with the money that they spent. It's possible, right? I mean, one of the interesting things is looking at like Roll20, their store is is fine. There's nothing wrong with it. But, you know, folks who sell on there don't report amazing sales, right? The the sales there are reported from fellow creators as being really slow. And drive-through is same company, but bigger, right? And, and why is that, right? And it, there hasn't been that shift. And I think a good question is if you had a virtual tabletop and people were actually using it and love the 3D format and all of that, those are all big ifs, then maybe all that monetization could happen around selling things many different ways. And that's where you can have your cake and eat it too. You could make Tomb of Annihilation at this big, broad level, but also 
sell the parts of it on D&D Beyond as they already do today, sell the parts of it on uh, the Virgil tabletop and give you the 3D model with the glowing axe and the whatever things and all kinds of little things like that that people might very well enjoy doing the way they do digital dice today. All of that is possible, but a lot of things have to line up for it to really be substantial. And, and I think it's, 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 it's a very open question as to whether any of that will, will come our way. Good. Uh, next question from Silicius via the Patreon Discord. When writing might be the cheapest part of books, why don't they write bigger books? And we were we had this discussion before about write, you know, art layout often costing more than creating the text. Uh, well, the answer is because if you make bigger books, then you also have to do things other than writing because people won't buy books, generally speaking, that are all text. Yeah. So you make a hundred thousand more words, you have to create now, a hundred more pieces of art to make the book work for people who prefer art in their books. So it doesn't actually save you anything. Yeah. Yeah, that's really it. It's that the the, the organization of it is complicated. And, and I, I just was part of a, a Jeff Stevens project, which is a fantastic project. And but just, you know, doing my little part of it and knowing that, well, you know, Jeff's got to go look at my weapon and think through it, read it, adjust it, and all of that. And it has to do that for all the contributors. That's a lot of work. And so having more magic items is more work. It really is. Even though it might not be a huge dollar cost, it's someone's time. It's the the how do you organize it? How do you make it useful? Bigger books become harder. So I think that actually the, why we see them going to a larger font size, you know, yeah, sure, readability is fine. But also it's because they are creating a lot of content for a low price point. And even though that writing is cheap, everything else about it is expensive. The printing is expensive. So fewer pages, uh, that is a huge win. Fewer words, huge win. And that's the direction they'd love to head in. <laughs> mm -hmm. For sure. We have a question from Kurt Ugel via YouTube. Do you find yourself reskinning the hell out of adventure modules and settings to flesh out plots and NPCs? If so, could you please share the method to your madness? For me, reskinning wildly cut down on issues of prep time and writer's block. Mm -hmm. My main supplements to it are adding more art, a picture being worth a thousand words, for portraits, settings, and maps. I get really inspired and develop deeper and more sensible plots, fuller NPCs that are more connected to the story and setting and more interesting sets of pieces and loot, or, or and more interesting set pieces and loot. Uh, what do you think, Teos? Yeah, I mean, I love reskinning. I love using a published adventure for several reasons. One is that I love learning from others. Because I'm in the business of writing adventures, I want to be in the business of reading adventures and enjoying them and learning from them, and especially from the best people out there that, that can make great things. You know, there are times when I read something by Will Doyle or Chris Perkins, and I think, yep, I still have plenty of work to do in my craft. Like, I am nowhere near the top where my game could be. And so this is a way to do it. And I'll take an adventure and like, you know, Tomb of Annihilation, I took um, the idea, there's this sort of throwaway idea of like this sunken city. And I'm like, cool. And there are these pirates. And I just start thinking to myself, this is a neat area that I can flesh out of telling the story of the pirates and relating them to this idea of this sunken city and what's down there. 
and then taking elements of what the characters have in their stories and connecting to it. So one character didn't know who their god was, right? That was part of their hook. So, you know, what if the answer is down below or, or a possible answer? I can float, if you will, an answer to them and see whether they like it. And if they like it, then, well, now we've found answers to who your god is. And so, you know, just I love doing things like that because you have the foundation of this established adventure, but you can just run in the direction that it makes sense. And then what I, the hardest part for me is to just put a little circle around it. Some say, okay, I am now done with that, right? That is the part that I've customized, but I still need to, at some point, end this campaign. So I've got to move on. I can't just endlessly add to it because we'll never finish. <laughs> How about you, Sean? Yeah. I mean, Te Teos and I came up in the industry through organized play mostly. And so we were... Whatever we did before, DMing wise, running adventures, creating content, we then had to rethink the way we handle it because we had to present it in an organized play context. Yeah. So we had to get used to running things more as they were written. And when you could make tweaks, you made the, the tweaks as subtle as possible to keep the experience that the players were having uh, on par with every other table that was running it yeah. but then we also are still dms for home games and so learning to do it one way and learning then to all right i have to run this as it's written minor tweaks based on the play styles of the players but now that i'm taking it to a home game where i can do whatever i want what are some things that i would do and so running adventures in one setting for one type of group and then in another setting for another type of group really helps you see the breadth of play experiences that you can create using this exact same content and that sort of helps you once you then also learn play styles of groups and of players really tailor content uh to, to the smallest degree and to the widest degree, where I'm just going to use this full adventure as a very rough blueprint for the actual campaign I'm going to run, uh, which I did with Acquisitions Incorporated. Mm -hmm. After writing it to run a certain way, when I uh, ran it, I changed a lot, lot of things around uh, and, and enjoyed doing that as a as an experiment of sort of dming on the fly yeah awesome agreed and and, and i find that to yep. be a really wonderful way to play the game to take someone that something that someone has, has created and reskin and change you know and, and sometimes it's just like when you read an adventure and you think for my group i need a little something else like i remember i ran an adventures league uh storm king's thunder sort of ice thing and i added a little piece about interacting with a merchant to get sort of cold weather gear and but that created a really nice role-playing foundation that really helped us have a better session from there on out and it was just riffing and adding off of what was there in a very throwaway intro to make it more substantial and then i knew well it's still a four-hour slot so i've got to compress elsewhere right to make up for this time but in the end it was it was well worth doing yeah. because it was more fun for everybody that way yep so i hope that helps uh Kurt. And final question coming us to us via YouTube from Daniel Wong. I would love to hear 
more about tropes and concepts driving dungeon creation or adventure design. Mm. Any thoughts, also any thoughts on solo role-playing games? Are you familiar with the board game Warhammer Quest from 1995, which has random dungeons ending with objective rooms, then tables of event for between dungeon dells? Uh, I am not familiar with that board game. I am familiar and or have become familiar with other board games of that ilk, one of which Teos writes for. <laughs> so uh, I think they're fun. I Yes, he is going to hold up his little uh, addition here to the game, which is out now and available, I believe. Yep. Yep. But we'll talk about that later. Yeah, we'll uh, so... There are there's so much to talk about with uh, tropes driving dungeon creation or concepts for adventure design. The the main thing that I try to get across when I talk about these concepts interacting is you have two things going on when you are creating an adventure or a dungeon. You have the world in which this takes place. And you have an experience that you want the players to have mm -hmm. as they interact with those things. And you have to constantly keep in mind as you're working on one or the other that these two need to interact in some way. Mm. So you don't want to go too deep down the rabbit hole of creating this perfect dungeon without stopping at several points along the way and thinking, are the players going to have fun interacting with this dungeon if you put 72 rooms in and 60 of them are empty because that's more realistic yeah. you are probably not going to serve the players as well as a dungeon that had 12 rooms and every single one of them have something fun to interact with mm -hmm. so that's if i could just in you know a minute and a half give one piece of advice that's the piece of advice mm -hmm. I would give. Yeah, I think that's a really good thought that the when you look at those older tropes, especially when we're talking about old tropes, that sort of idea mm -hmm. of play that feels like a board game or a card game. And, and you know, you can look at one deck dungeon and you can look at Hero Quest and you can look at um, the Ravenloft board game and, and the Shardalon and that whole series, right? There's a lot of this sort of just the mechanics of move x enter room deal with the threat which may be a trap or a monster or a treasure or you know and that sort of repetitive thing it's super pleasing and it's fun and there is something to be learned about how fun just those elements are right just like a choose your own adventure book can be super fun and occupied hours of our time but when we play a role-playing game we usually want more than those pieces it's not just adding those things together it's not a choose your own adventure book plus a, a Chardalon board game. It is many more things. And so the more that you can tie into that, I think in today's game, will generally create a better experience, unless you're deliberately going for a retro style or something like that, then that's fine. Uh, but with all the understanding that that may be, uh, for some folks, a thing they want to dabble into and not stay in too long. So thank you there, Daniel, for that question. And thank you all for listening and you can always contact us via the various places that we are and we'll talk about all of those at the end of the show 
So let's get into our news and commentary section, starting with Bald Man Games looking for volunteers for PAX Unplugged. Yes, we are just a week away, Teos and I, or actually like three days away from from Gamehole Con, but PAX Unplugged is on the horizon, and it is not a small show in its own right. And Baldman Games runs the official D&D stuff happening there. And so they are looking for volunteers to help set up, help break down, to run games, and so on. Um, the setup and the convention start on November 30th. That's a Thursday. And the convention runs Friday, December 1st through Sunday, December 3rd. If you are running games there, you can run three slots. So that's three four-hour sessions and get a full show badge, which is a great deal. And if you run five slots for the show, you can get a spot in a free hotel room, uh, which is, again, uh, for for that convention with the way the setup is there in Philadelphia, not a bad deal at all. Um, so there are three slots on Friday and Saturday and two slots on Sunday. Um, what's running there? What are what is Bald Man Games running, and what might you be running if you volunteer? They have a D and D demo, which is fifteen to twenty minutes, that runs in the main hall upstairs between ten a.m. and ten p.m. And that's just a quick one encounter. This is what D and D is. This is how the dice work. This is how your character works. There's an intro to D and D game that also runs in the main hall upstairs, and that goes from uh, 90 minutes to two hours. That's an intro to, to D&D. So you would run it twice if you run a four-hour slot. What else is happening? They're running Planescape Turn of Fortune's Wheel. Ooh. That is the adventure, the Planescape adventure in the hardcover. They are running chapter one from that adventure with third or fourth level Planescape characters able to play. They're also running a Planescape Epic a uh, four-hour event for, for thir third or fourth level characters. Wow. And they're also running classic adventures to kick off the 50th anniversary celebration of D&D a bit early. Um, they are running the Hidden Shrine of Tomoe Chan and Tomb of Horrors as a fifth edition uh, game. So all of those things are there to play if you're going or if you want to volunteer, you could, uh, you know, Get a free badge, free room, and uh, get to share the love of D&D. There's mm -hmm. nothing official announced about an AL campaign for Planescape. So as far as we know right now, these are just one-offs. Right. And you can find all of that at baldbanggames.com. And mm -hmm. I'll link in the show notes. What else do you have going on, Teos? Well, how about a job that may be a dream job for a lot of folks? Wizards of the Coast is hiring the D&D &D lead narrative designer. And this is tied to digital experiences, which may be of interest to folks even who don't want to be employed. Uh, there's This new job posting is about working with the game director to build the future of D&D's digital play experience. And I'll quote what it says here. In this role, you will plan detail and supervise the creation of digital experiences for all types of players while also aligning with the business and design goals of the product. You will be an advocate for our audience and the design ethos of the studio, cultivating the connective tissue between our digital adventures and other parts of the D&D ecosystem, including books, TV, games, and more. Most of all, we need someone comfortable collaborating in real time with other designers, artists, programmers, and product managers to deliver the highest quality results. 
And with that awesome sounding description is a salary ranging from 104,000 to 176,000 US dollars. Uh, not bad at all. No, oh, interesting. Uh, interesting to note. Yeah, and... I'm, 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 you know, and I like that the description kind of ties into all the things we often talk about on the show, right? That like D and D is right. not this one thing; it's the connection of all of those. And so this is a, a job posting that really seems to speak to that, right? Kind of cool, for sure, for sure. So we go from the real world uh, to the big bad villain world. Gnome Stew has five strategies for creating unforgettable big bad villains. Uh, this blog by Shane Dayton on the well-loved and long-lasting blog Gnome Stew is a great read, providing excellent ideas on how to create believable and fun villains. What did you think of this article, Teos? It's really cool. I'm not going to spoil all of it, but a couple of the points are treat big bads like PCs, ask why, what the villain motivation is, and to think through in a couple of different ways what your villain is up to and why they're doing this cool sounding evil thing. Uh, and then uh, some ideas on a motivational twist. And, and those first three points I thought were some of my favorites that, that are made in this uh, article, but I really encourage reading it it, it's the kind of thing that I go, yeah, yeah, I know how to make good villains. And then I read read the article and I go, oh yeah, these are good ideas. This is a good, <laughs> this is a good blog. This is one to bookmark, favorite, you know, save as PDF kind of thing. Some very nice thoughts there. There you go. And now we get to some creator and crowdfunding news, starting with James Hake launching his own YouTube channel. Um, the first two videos are up covering how all DMs are game designers, and then various useful tips and thoughts related to this. Um, James, he's been on the show, I I believe, a great game designer, and uh, you can learn a lot from James Hake. Yeah, and his second video, I didn't write in the show notes here, but his second video I just finished watching is about um, different types of games. So it really ties into some of the coverage you've done here in Mastering Dungeons, and he particularly uses Fantasy Flight games to talk about how the dice are different and why they're different and the kind of narrative he does. And he's hilarious because he covers a campaign where a DM called George runs a game for a player, Mark, who wants to run a farm boy and a guy, Harrison, who wants to run a kind of scoundrel type character. And then he uses the dice and their outcomes of the fantasy flight games, kind of weird symbol mm -hmm. dice and talks through, you know, how those result in the story of the first movie. And it, it's very entertaining. It does a really good job of making his point about how dice drive action and why you don't just use a D20 for RPGs. There you go. Um, and HeroQuest is releasing some new thing, Teos. I, I'm sure you don't know much about this. So we can just, oh, wait, you've got a copy. You must know the, the creator. Somewhere, if you could zoom in, uh, you know, like right here, where is it? There, you can find my name on on the 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 box. Um, I'm so excited to see this. It's gorgeous. This really like shiny foil for this Hero Quest. So when when Hero Quest was rebooted, relaunched, it did it as a crowdfunding exercise, and that um, was really cool. Except that the expansion that I wrote and another expansion someone else wrote, uh, there were three of us that wrote expansions. All of those were only available if you bought the like big mythic level crowdfunding tier. Well, they're now releasing some of these out there. So uh, Spirit Queen's Torment is out now as its own quest pack. And I got a 
contributor copy, which I'm really thankful for. And, and you can order that. It's it's out now. You can order it uh, via the Hasbro site and other stores as well, because it's you know it's available out there, which is really just wild that I could possibly see this in a gaming store. Um, I think it's really fun. When I wrote this, I really had the 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 charter was to make orcs interesting and different in the hero crest world because they've traditionally been fodder that you just tear apart as we talked about tropes right you know beat up on those orcs right and so i wrote a story about who the orcs have really been historically in the hero quest world uh which was really a lot of fun to do and, and kind of nice. put a different spin on them we need to play hero quest at game Holcon because i have i have the box but i just haven't found the people to play uh, play if, yet if you'll bring it i'll run it it's a little large to port around but uh there must be a yeah game i don't even know i might have to yeah the game library yeah. might have so That'd be i great. would totally yeah. play some here I'll, I'll bring this game if you will if, if we can find i could i could, I could run this if we uh, have the expand if the, the base set so. if i hire if i rent a trailer i could put it on the back just to bring <laughs> the hero quest game yeah <laughs> I, I love it. It's a lot of fun. It is really fun, quick play. Yeah. So. Mm -hmm. Cool. Uh, we have art from Tony DiTerlisi called The Pen and Ink Drawings of Tony DiTerlisi. Uh, this artist is from the original Planescape and author of Wundla and Spiderwick Chronicles. Tony has a new book collecting sketches from across his career. It's at stewartngbooks.com. 128 pages. For $30 signed. Yeah, I bought mine this morning. I own a couple of Tony's sketchbooks from uh, the Wanla series of books, which I really like. Uh, I think he also has some for Spiderwick Chronicles. I love just those kind of sketches that he does. And he has in this book, uh, he has lots of D&D &D planescape art and other art of these sort of sketches, line drawings that are just so creative and fantastic. I find they're, they're great way to cleanse your brain and get ideas by just looking at art like this so highly encourage mm -hmm. just 30 dollars it's great yeah nice we have hell watch infernal oath which is a 5e campaign and setting from lion banner games they've already funded this and it is about infernal forces cursing a land where heroes are needed to Break the Curse in this dark fantasy campaign, and there's a free sample PDF. What do you know about this, Deus? I was uh, fortunate to talk to Andrea Aloisi, Aloisi? Uh, sorry, Andrea, uh, who did additional game design on this project. And, you know, one of the things that we, you and I often talk about that, that warms our, our old hearts is being able to talk to folks who reach out to us and say, hey, thanks for the podcast. I have a question about the industry. You know, how does this work? How should I approach this thing? And this was one of those cases. And so it was really cool to exchange ideas with Andrea and then see the awesome design he did. Um, his monsters have some really cool, they're my kind of monsters, meaty with a lot to do, really creative, interactive ideas where the, you feel what the monster is doing. It's very, it's not just swinging and hitting, it's doing really interesting things. and. So great to see the project doing well. Congrats to Andrea and uh, the team at Lion Banner Games. Mm -hmm. And last but not least, we have a project called Nimble, Streamlining Your 5e Game. This comes to us from a, another creator, Evan Diaz. And the concept is speeding up 5e combat 
while increasing the interesting and meaningful choices for both the players and the DM. Uh, many of the core, core rules are streamlined or they have variants that streamline it to help you streamline your game, mm -hmm. uh, as the title so ably tells us. You can download a sample PDF to look, and this is on kickstarter.com. It's only $4 for the PDF, and you have until November 10th to back it, and a link is in our show notes to their Kickstarter. Yeah, and thanks to Evan for the kind words about, about our efforts. Yeah, this is another case where it was fun to just hear about their ideas, and we often come up with the idea of like home home rules, you know, home brewing something, fixing things, areas of the game. So this is a really nice for just four dollars. You can get lots of ideas on how to streamline 5e. Well recommended. And with that, we are on to our main topic today here on Mastering Dungeons. We continue our look at fifth edition Planescape. Last week, we looked at chapter one of the book and uh, which covers the character options as well as the introduction where we gave you know the overall feel of Planescape. Chapter two gets us into the setting itself where we learn about Sigil, I have to say it correctly, <laughs> Sigil, the city of doors. Uh, so what is Sigil? Where is it? Well, according to the book, it's at the crossroads of the multiverse, the a city at the center of the great wheel that is connected to every plane of existence and the infinite worlds among those planes. The city of doors brims with commerce, travel schemes, and adventure. Sigil is also referred to as the cage because the only way in or out of the city is through one of its countless portals pathways that are controlled by the enigmatic lady of pain can i say sean well i think I was, that does a good job yeah yeah it was a really good description but but i when i saw this part and then some of the language later it actually led me to say wait wait a minute how do you get to this place and out of this place because it's this bustling place full of commerce so there's got to be travel all the time from all these people heading to all these different planes from and to but these portals are sort of like controlled and you may not have the portal key. And there's a lot of space devoted to sort of saying how it doesn't work. And I feel like there isn't enough space saying how it does work. And maybe it should just do so at the meta level, which is to say, hey, lots of people have ways to get in and out. You decide the ways in and out for your party. When they come to sigil, when they you know need to leave, he facilitate that right because it's that's what where the fun is um but people who aren't wanted in the city or who shouldn't be here just can't get there and i think that it could have just said that in a more maybe as a sidebar or something to really speak to the dm because i was reading it, i was like wait wait how do you get in here and the answer is just well when the dm says so <laughs> right and, and that goes back to a question that we answered in the previous segment, which is when you build a world for role-playing games, you're building the world, mm -hmm. but you're also building a play experience. And sometimes we lose, as designers, we lose focus on one or the other because we're either we go down a rabbit hole or we're trying to reconcile old lore with new game. Oh, there, there's many reasons why we might. 
And I got, sort of got the same feeling, and we'll talk mm. about this in more detail as we go through this chapter. But but it was very much like, okay, yeah, this is so cool. Now, how do I use it? Yeah, yeah. And so we will see how, as these features go, we'll talk about how you might use it or how you might not use it or how you might want to use it <laughs> as long as your players don't know how the game thinks you're going to use it. Yeah. But we've learned that that Sigil uh, exists simultaneously at the center of this great wheel, this cosmology that draws all the multiverses or all the worlds of the multiverse together. Uh, it is in the shape of a torus, which is a donut. It's a car. It's shaped like a car. The top, not a torus. Oh, oh. Uh, not a Ford Taurus. <laughs> Or not the uh, astrological symbol, Taurus, T-O-R-U-S, which is that round shape. Okay, smart. So things. it the the city itself is on the well, no, because I I as I was reading yeah. this, I was trying to figure out physically what it looked like. So it's the donut that's around the t the spire that's called the spire. Uh, but and it hangs above the rest of this is this is where I'm I, I'm getting confused because we 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 call Sigil the city, but the outlands are different. Mm -hmm. But do all the rules that form Sigil also carry through to the outlands? It's not Can clear in not this part get of into the book. Those, yeah, I wondered that too. Right, and and that. And so that's why I was like, hmm, and we'll uh -huh. find out as we read, maybe. Maybe. But so I'm like, how do you get to the Outlands from from Sigil if you're not? And at first I thought Sigil sat at the top of the donut. Mm -hmm. But then I realized, no, it's, it's, the, it's the center. It, it's like the, the inside, inside of, a, of a, you know, if we take like a ring, right? And, and I can't leave right. my wedding ring on show. That would be bad. But, you know, it's like being on the inside. Right. And you can look up and if it's a clear day, see... Sigil. See the rest of the city above you, mm -hmm. uh, but but not because we'll we'll talk more about the weather later, uh, sort of. So it's it's this cool vision mm -hmm. once you once you understand it, and if you the buildings edge both sides of this ring, yeah. But if you climb the buildings and look out over the edge, you see sort of infinity, and if you jump off. You don't die. You just end up somewhere else in the multiverse. Yeah, uh, so which, it, is, it's which like, is a cool thought. And and that's what's it's really fascinating concept. Um, the idea that like yes, it's this ring that's above this peak, but there is absolutely no way to get from one to the other. Mm -hmm. And it's right. not necessarily actually here, right? That's kind of the wild thing. It's like yeah. you might be able to see it somehow from below, and you could say it's there, but it's not really there. That is really a bizarre concept. And what I do, hats off to, you know, Justice Armand and whoever smoothed this over, because I think there are some things that when you read the original box set, you're like, oh, that doesn't make any sense. And they have deliberately pushed into that and said, it doesn't make sense because the Lady of Pain changes it, right? So, for example, there was this old 2E map that basically has been redone almost as is for 5E to say, here's the city and various locations, and it's sort of drawn as two bands that you could literally tape together. But it says there are no distances on this map because the distances change and things move. So these are sort of relative positions, 
but the distance between them mm -hmm. is up to the DM every single time, which is fascinating. Yeah, it's it's it is. Except we've already seen that done with Descent into Avernus. Mm, the maps yeah. for that yeah. said basically the same thing. <laughs> yeah. And I'm cool with that. As a player, I'm cool with that. As a game master, I'm cool with it. There are a lot of people who aren't cool with that yeah. and voice their displeasure about not mm. knowing exactly how far things are. And so when this did the same thing, I'm like, okay, that's cool. Uh, a lot of people aren't going to think it's cool. I mean, this is the setting to do it. I think you know it has that sort of like dark right. city right. type element. It it has these kinds of sci-fi-ish angles to it that that things aren't just they don't make sense. And and boy, if there's a setting that digs into that, it sure is Planescape. Yep. So that's that's the city, the basics of the city. Mm -hmm. And so we get some features described. One of the features. Uh, you know, there, there are features and they're standard, what you would see in a normal city. And then we get the weather, which is described thusly. And this is like a bullet point. Weather. Fog, smog, and drizzle. The most weather variation Sigil sees. Gather at ground level and limit visibility to 1d6 times 50 feet on the murkiest of days. The temperature varies between balmy and chilly year-round, and rarely nears extremes. I don't know what any of that actually means. I think it means now, you're not going to go wild. This might just be me. I think it's just right. that, you know, temperature doesn't go into the far extremes, nor does um, precipitation or cloudiness or whatever. But other than that, you can describe it however you want, because the Lady of Pain just wished okay. it that way. Yeah, so because, yeah, so it, it, it's not always foggy, smoggy, or drizzly. Mm -hmm. Okay. But it can be whenever you want, up to you. <laughs> but it can, but it can be. So it's mm -hmm. like everywhere else in the world. But the day-night cycle is 24 hours because let's not complicate things. <laughs> and there is no sunlight. It's just is light right. or dark. Okay. Yeah. And the temperature varies between balmy and chilly year round, but rarely nears extremes. Well, balmy and chilly to me is an extreme. <laughs> now, maybe it's just because of where I live, but <laughs> I'm like, all right, it doesn't get extreme except for these two extremes. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, I, I guess it just means it's not Arctic or right. volcanic. It's, yeah. it's somewhere. Okay. Okay, cool. I think the idea is that you could right. be inconvenienced so by your choice of outerwear. <laughs> okay, I know a little bit about that as well. Uh, so th that's so basically, it's like a regular city in terms of its weather, its light. It does a twenty-four hour day-night cycle. Mm -hmm. You can walk and keep walking and go right around the in inside of the Taurus, and and you're you're good. Uh, but what about magic? This is a very, very magical place. You could only get in and out via via magic, via these portals. So what changes do we see to magic based on that? Well, first, the they, they do the banishment, banishment spell right away. Right I'm away. like, okay, cool. They're going to get rid of banishment. Yay. And then it says all creatures on Sigil act as if they are from Sigil in terms of banishment. In other words, you can be banished. Right. But you, you can be banished be from banished. Sigil, but you forever like you know you can't be returned to your home plane right mm -hmm. so 
so I was like, okay, so they they didn't fix banishment with this, which I was hoping that they would. But at least they did. But wait a second. So if if something banishes my character, then can I teleport away from that place to escape Sigil? No, because when you are banished and you are from the place, you are placed in a pocket dimension and you are incapacitated until you save out there you of it. Go. Okay. The the difference would be that if and I think the reason they did this is if you allowed, let's say, a demon to be banished as if they are from the plane that they are, then they would be banished to that plane. And if it lasted right. a minute, they'd be permanently out there versus returning. Right. So this way they they will come back is the idea. Like you can't just get rid of a creature, they will come back. So it, it fixes a bit of a problem you'd have if you were constantly dealing with outer planar creatures and getting rid of them. Banishment would be mm -hmm. too sweet. So now we're back to normal yep. level of banishment, which is still too sweet, but you know, maybe 5e 2024 will fix yep. that. We'll see. Okay, cool. So what about extra dimensional spaces? Those spaces still work, but they have the same properties as Sigil. Mm -hmm. So your bags of holding and your portable holes and all of those sorts of things, they still work, but the inside of those extra dimensional spaces are, are still Sigil. Mm -hmm. So you can't teleport anything away from that to another right. plane yeah. uh, or get around the cage properties of, of Sigil by yeah. summoning an extra dimensional space and then going from there. So what about planar travel? Effects that allow planar travel fail if you're traveling into Sigil or out of Sigil from in or out. You mm -hmm. can't come in or leave Sigil using the planar travel. Uh, tell us about summoning. I mean, that's my favorite because the idea is that you can summon creatures, but it only works if that type of creature that you're summoning is already within Sigil. It won't reach outside of Sigil. So if you were to like summon some fiend, it's literally coming from across town <laughs> and you might see it tomorrow, which I think every DM is going to be ready for that, right? Please, please, please summon something so that I can introduce it to you tomorrow and go, you, you're the one who summoned me and just, you know, <laughs> get really angry at them. You've got yeah. explaining to do. Yeah. So once you learn that, I guess the idea is you probably don't want to summon something unless you really have to, because you're going to have to explain, you know, why you did this to it. Mm -hmm. Teleportation, you can teleport within Sigil, but not into or out of Sigil. And that's where the question about the Outlands comes to me, yeah. is can you teleport from Sigil to the Outlands, or do you need uh, do you need special portals to get there? We don't know yet, but maybe in later sections we will be told. Mm -hmm. Teleportation circles. There are teleportation circles within Sigil, and you can use them with permission. So if you have the permission of whatever entity has access to and has created these teleportation circles, you can use them, but you can't create new ones on your own. Yeah. And then we get a summoning sidebar. And this is where I had a little head scratch. And it says, the unique planar geography of Sigil should create interesting 
even if sometimes confounding twists, but it should, shouldn't prevent a character from doing what they do best. And part of me respects this, right? There is a game designer part of me that says, yes, you do not want to take away from the characters and the players what they love. But part of me says, if you're creating a new world and a new setting that is meant to do that, you should not shy away from doing that. So rather than saying, okay, we've got this incredibly different world setting that's the center of the world and the, the Lady of Pain locks everything down, but don't stop the players from doing what they do. <laughs> Yeah, it, it seems contradictory. It seems I don't want to say a bit of a cop out because I can see both sides of it, but it it doesn't take the step that I want to teach DMs how to have fun or pr yeah. provide fun to the players while still doing things to make the game not harder, but different for them. I think that. What th this is sort of, I think, missing a little piece. Again, sometimes it's important to break down the meta and, and explain what you're explaining. Mm -hmm. They do this sort of in character, which is maybe part of the problem, because there's a difference between like the example we we're talking about of like, oh, I summon a fire elemental for this battle, which can be perfectly fine to be like, this elemental is totally mad at you and tomorrow will hate you. And the situation where you might say like I am, and I forget which of the Tasha's subclasses, one of the Tasha's subclasses has a thing where you're basically constantly summoning this companion, or maybe it's one of the spells or, or maybe both. And, and so you may be doing this all the time as part of your build, right? And mm -hmm. if the DM right. were to say, nah, cause it's going to be angry at you and want to beat you up later, suddenly the fun of your build has gone away the same way that you know when you had like in third edition people who always wanted to be on mounted combat and you said i'm sorry at the beginning of the adventure you can't bring your thing on the boat and they're like are you kidding me this is my character mm -hmm. so like to meta speak to dms and say if the build is dependent on summoning if this is what they do then mm -hmm. have a fun role-playing thing to enable that right you know listen burke you keep summoning me we need to have a talk about this let's work you and i work this out I will help you, but in exchange, I need this thing. And it becomes a plot part and an interesting thing. And maybe you learn more about Sigil that way. And that could be interesting, right? But they, they don't kind of break down that meta. And I think that's what they're trying to get to. Mm -hmm. I, I totally agree. Use it as education. Use it as yeah. a way to talk about running a fun game when options are limited. Um, I couldn't have said it any better, so I will stop saying it. Uh, the next section we get is life in Sigil. And as we mentioned last week, the one of the core concepts of this is anything in the multiverse could be here and they will likely not be at war, even if they would be at war when they're out on their world or out on their plane. So you might find an angel and a demon getting drinks after work. Uh, what that means is you really should lean into that to make the campaign what the setting wants it to be. And I, I want a little education again on mm -hmm. how far to go with that. 
uh, what if you take it to the extreme where you do see this? Um, what what if you want to run sort of a more serious campaign? How can you show that through an adventure, through role play, whatever, without it becoming sort of a joke? Uh, I agree with you. You could run a campaign either way. Yeah. It feels like a, I think that the level at which it's explained and the art which evokes classic art by Tony DiTerlizzi on the same thing of sort of, you know, an angel and a demon at the same table, it feels caricature-ish. And I want to know more to help me run it as a DM. Like, are angels and demons hooking up at taverns? Are they at the bar at night and then they go home together? That doesn't make any sense to me. Like, like I need it a little explained more as to, because at some point you are the ethos of law and good and whatever, and everything in the monster manual should be true. So how are we just chilling out having, you know, an espresso together uh, or maybe a dalliance together? Like that doesn't really make sense. Are we having, is Planescape a totally different tonal campaign? Is it, you know, or is it that they are at the coffee shop together because there are machinations at play and the complexity mm-hmm. complexities of them play out the way spies do, where sometimes you must interact with the right. other side in certain ways that may be objectionable to the core but of, of, of your ethos, but you must do that to have these very important, planar, multiversal things turn out favorably for your side. And, you know... Mm-hmm. More is needed, and I would want more guidance there to get what is happening here. <laughs> Why you're having coffee with a demon? I wouldn't have coffee with a demon. It, exactly. I mean, there are types of campaigns that are tailor made for this, and like you said, sort of a post World War II mm-hmm. Germany, right? Berlin yeah. Yeah, spies right. and interacting, but respecting each other, but still. Uh, trying to defeat each other right Right. that sort of thing is a great so just say that just come right out and say here are four beautiful types of campaigns you could run in here uh and and then refer to those throughout this as as uh things to downplay or things to highlight as you are running this campaign Mm -hmm. We also learn about the factions. We don't get the full list yet, but we hear that there are many factions and those factions sort of make the city run. The the Lady of Pain is in charge, but she is distant and inscrutable. So it's the factions that handle law enforcement and handle the bureaucracy of, of the city sometimes. And it's it's mentioned and then no more. And my first question is, okay, that we know there are factions and we know some of them are totally at odds with each other. Yeah. So you break a law and the right the the super good lawful faction shows up and then the sort of chaotic uh, anything goes freedom faction shows up. Who's in charge? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not saying it's wrong. It just needs to be explained how that works. Yeah, I agree. Uh, with you. It's a little. Thin. What sort of what sort of campaigns am I running? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. 
Yeah, and, and we saw this when we reviewed Planescape and we were, you know, touring uh, the the Modron March and there was, you know, like, oh, you go to this sort of mechanist inspired lawful gate town and there's this law case and, and you have to abide by these very tight rules. And in a gate town, I get it because then we can really say, well, everybody is feeling this way. But it is sort of strange to go to Sigil and say, like, well, when it's a law thing, totally the lawful people are in charge. And when it's a, I don't know, information brokering thing, well, then the chaotic whatever faction is involved, it, it feels a little thin and I don't know how to kind of handle it convincingly. And I find it a bit intimidating to try to run a, a longstanding Planescape campaign because of that, just reading this content. Something they do explain well uh, is the sort of trade uh, mm -hmm. aspect, the commerce aspect, where they say that being at the center of the multiverse, Sigil is going to have a lot of coins, a lot of different kinds of coins. And how do you handle that? It's all about the weight and the material that it's made of. So you can... Right, a Greyhawk coin and a Forgotten Realms coin. If they're both the same weight and both made of gold, they're both going to be worth the exact same mm -hmm. amount. But there are also different things worth worthwhile to people. It could be the soul coins from Avernus, uh, which would have an inherent value of the soul in them. You could have woodworking done from the great trees of uh, you know, the seven heavens. That might be a different value to someone. So you can sort of have this barter system set up uh, that can work any way that you'd like. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, they also talk about services that can be rendered. And again, so it's sort of an anything goes uh, paragraph. I would have loved a, a little bit more detail here, but... At least it's basically saying you can have any sort of service happen here. You need to be raised, done. You need to have a curse lifted, done. You need to extract the soul from another creature. You can find someone to do that. Anything that can be done would be done for a price here in Sigil. Any other thoughts on this life in Sigil chapter, Teos? Yeah, I mean, you know, we I think there are kind of some nice parts here around. Um, I mean, they, they sort of tell you that these sedan chairs that are moved around and they won't go to the super dangerous places. But some of these chairs that will kind of carry around some of the folks that will carry on that you carry you around in these chairs are like ogres or umber hulks. And those will charge extra to go to dangerous areas of Sigil. Um, and then we have the touts, which are the independent local guides and translators who know the ins and out of Sigil, which makes more sense given that the city's constantly changing. So you not only have to know like the path to places, but who's in charge of what and dealing with factions and so on. We're told they charge two silver pieces per hour, um, and then they may charge more, two gold, for those that really understand, uh, maybe have more languages, understand the factions better, can really get what you want. And that can climb all the way to 20 gold per hour. And I like that. I think the touts have always been a neat idea in, in Planescape, uh, especially for new characters to help you kind of navigate that. And it's very realistic. In big cities, you see a lot of this, right? I remember going to Tokyo and hiring essentially a tout to help me find nightclubs because that's mm -hmm. how it works, right? And they, you, it must go through them. And so there's a lot of this kind of must go through them 
uh, kind of mentality to a tout, which makes it a fun aspect of the city. We also learn life in Sigil that language is interesting because no matter what world you're from, if you speak common, you can talk to anybody from any other world <laughs> that speaks common, which makes people believe in game that language began here or something. Uh, we don't see that it's magical in any way. It mm -hmm. seems that actually common on one world is the same as common on any other world. That makes zero sense, but let's go with it because it's simpler. Mm -hmm. uh, we get a couple of local nuisances, being cranium rats and razor vine. Uh, cranium rats are interesting, and we will talk more about them as we look at the monsters and the flora and fauna of, of the world. And razor vine is something that's in the Dungeon Master's Guide, so that's uh, been around for a while. Yeah, it's fun. I like the Lead idea. Us it gives it portals. Oh, did just say I like that it gives the city a feeling of it's not just perfect, right? That there are problems, and for and and you know maybe the 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 Lady of Pain desires it this way, but but there is something to be fought constantly. These rats and razor vine uh, as problems. I, I like that aspect to the campaign. That's a neat neat touch. Mm -hmm. Yep, and I would like to see more, mm -hmm. but. I think that at least gives, gives like you said, the idea that, yes, the factions are in charge. Yes, the Lady of Pain is all-powerful here in, in Sigil. But she might let things slide sometimes. Mm -hmm. So she's not necessarily omniscient, except maybe she is, uh, which we'll, we'll talk about in a minute. Mm -hmm. uh, portals. Portals are important. So they get their own section here. What do we learn about portals? We learn a few things. We learn that they are not always open. So when do they open? Well, here's a list. They can open at certain times. They can open when a particular condition is met. met. They can open in response to a command word or phrase. Or they can open when a traveler is holding a particular object called a portal key. So they pretty much open when the story says they should open. Yeah, and I like that there's a lot of information here on portals. Um, I think that, again, could have been a little more meta about it at times. But in terms of the in-game utility, it's, it's very nice. They have this concept that a portal key can really vary. It can be a whistle. It can be a type of person. It doesn't have to just be a physical key, though they often are. Um, and so that helps things for the DM because sometimes you will you will think you know well every time I'm going to have to find a key but no it can just be you know a person who says the password or a person who walks in backwards or whatever it might be then the portal will work for you and that's good because then you can have this sort of information that gets traded and doesn't have to always revolve around physically getting an object or returning the object when you're done. Um, we also get this really nice table of uh, it's a D100 table. It's not quite 100. Uh, it's a number of, of planar portals here. And it gives you the idea of what the portal might, what the anchor might look like, what the door itself sort of looks like from a sewer pipe to a revolving door to a shattered window, a razor vine trellis, a bedroom closet, you know, any number of ideas. And then where does it uh, lead to in Sigil? Where does it lead to in another plane? 
based on sort of the character of that door. Uh, and then sample keys for it, right? It can be anything like a tattered paper fan, celestial blood, a metal cog, you know, all kinds of things like that to sort of fit the kind of place where it's built. Like I like Elysium, uh, Tears of Joy as a uh, key, right? It's, it's great. Mm-hmm. Yep. And th- so that, this is when I like a table. This is when a table does a job of not just giving you random things, but teaching you how to create your own things. Yeah. Uh, it, yeah. it does a good job of that through example. And the yeah. last bit that we'll talk about for the, from this chapter is the lady of pain. So who or what is the lady of pain? She is the greatest entity in Sigil, an eternal being who watches over the city. Um, what does she look like? She appears human, but she wears ornate robes that shroud her and a mantle of blades coated in a blue-green verdigris that surrounds her mask-like face. So no one is certain who or what she is, but everyone assumes that she is on par with the deities. So that is that is really all we learn about her as a game mechanical thing. Right. right? She is powerful. And I love that's it. I forget the words they use somewhere, but somewhere they basically say, oh yeah, similar to other godlike beings, the Lady of Pain has no stat block. She's beyond the ability of characters to defeat mm-hmm. by conventional means. And it goes to that conversation we had with Alex Kammerer last week of, if you give it a stat block, right. players want to kill it, right? So there is no stat block. And it's like, yes, thank you. Don't give it a stat block. It's beyond that, right? She can do what she wants. She can flay yep. you with a thought. Uh, yep. Send you to another dimension, send you to the mazes, any of that. So is she a cool story? Is she an intriguing plot tool? Or is she a bludgeon to beat the characters with? <laughs> Why not all three? Yeah. Uh, she she is a tool for you as the game master to use. Uh, so use her wisely, like any other thing as the, as a, the game master, as the DM. You have the infinite power to do whatever you need to in the story. So make it worthwhile to the players when you do things that exceed their knowledge or exceed their power. Uh, if, if they are being, uh, trying to think of a, all the words that are coming to my head, I shouldn't say if they're being problematic players. Uh, definitely she would be there to punish them for their problematic behavior. But like every other game, you don't want to go too far with that. Uh, So use, use wisely. What else do we know about the lady of pain? Her, her spokespeople in the city don't actually speak. this this is this is one of those interesting gameplay versus lore setting lore things. <laughs> uh, they are I don't know how to pronounce it. They are called Dabus or yeah, Dabus, sure. and and I think they, they said Dabus. They on go around the and they videos, but I, I I like Dabu. I like that a lot. Yeah, they they float around the city communicating. Uh, the wishes of the lady of pain not through words but through rebuses if you're not familiar with what a rebus is it's one of those picture pictograms that you have to 
look at the pictures and sound out things. And it might say like house minus S is yeah. is yeah how and then you plus m plus a baseball bat is you know and then you have to sort of figure out the message that way which is awesome they use mm-hmm. these illusions to speak to you through through these rebuses but creating one on the fly <laughs> is practically impossible unless you're really 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 good at it and if you are I guess you now have a full-time job of creating <laughs> rebuses for D&D games set in Planescape. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it it is. I think what it does, and again, I could use some meta here, right? That that I think the meta of it is the Lady of Pain should essentially never show up except for the most, most critical part in a campaign as a symbol of something, right? The importance of something, mm-hmm. the good they've done, uh, the bad they've done, they being the characters. Um, a step down from that is these dabuses that would communicate in an enigmatic way when something is needed from the sort of the hand of the DM, right? To influence play where a faction wouldn't work. But in all other cases, it should be factions and entities of Sigil that are carrying the heavy load. And these things are the machinations in the back that sort of explain why it all somehow works, even when it shouldn't. And I think that just could use a breakdown. Uh, you know, how to use them, when you use them, why do you use them? Could be a little more, just break it down for the DM so we know. The lore of it is awesome, but yeah, how to make it tangible, useful. So what does the Lady of Pain do? Well, if she does exert her will, she basically punishes you or punishes offenders. How does she do so? Well, one way is to send people to the mazes, a demi-planar cage created by the Lady of Pain, reserved for would-be power mongers and dissidents who threaten the city on a grand scale or foolishly target the lady herself. And what does this maze do? It's like the maze spell. You you go there, except you can't get out. You don't need food or water. You don't require sleep while you're there. It's just an indefinite, isolated eternity of nothing. Yeah, I had a, the fortune Which sounded once. pretty good right about now. <laughs> Some people would choose this as a goal. Uh, I had a fun one shot that I once played with Eric Scott DeBee. Uh, who does amazing D&D work and novel work. And he ran a Sigil campaign where we were in Sigil, but everything was empty. And we came to find, we didn't know why, but we were in the mazes. And so we had to solve something in the mazes, a problem, to find the one way out, which was related to some problem that was taking place. And then we were able to escape the mazes. And so the one shot was really sort of largely about getting out of the mazes which i thought was a really cool idea uh when i played it i really didn't know much about the mazes so but a lot of the folks there started piecing it together the other players um out of character were piecing it together but it's it's a neat idea again not entirely clear what you do with it how to use it just from what's written here it's just sort of a threat that exists out there of well you know she can really 
not only can she murder you, but she can lock you up in a place for almost ever, if not ever. And if the whole city angers her, not just an individual, but the whole city, she can lock the cage. And this is her way of telling the factions, y'all aren't doing a good job of keeping the peace here. So I'm just not going to let anything into or out of the city. And that includes food coming in or waste going out <laughs> or you know, bodies being disposed of. So it turns into one big strike <laughs> and it turns very unpleasant until the factions quickly resolve whatever it is that the Lady of Pain wants them to. Interfering with the Lady, if you're foolish enough to try to, oh, I don't know, attack her or maybe even look at her, she can essentially drop you to one hit point immediately uh, and then if the creature hasn't learned its lesson from that, uh, off to the mazes they go. So, like I said, a big stick with which to beat the your player characters into shape if necessary. But otherwise, an interesting and uh, powerful plot and story driving element to your campaign. Yeah. It's cool. I mean, I, I read this overall, you know, Sean, I, I think I, I, you know, I rather like this section. Uh, I think it, it's very nicely written, really good words, really evocative. Um, but I do find it a little intimidating, when, especially when I, I try to think, you know, me as a new DM, if I picked up this product, I would be like, this is amazing and almost and also I'm a little scared. So I want to see what the rest of the book says. Mm -hmm. Does it make me feel a little calmer and, and give me ideas? And does the adventure help me, you know, with because even the everyday, yeah. like like if you look at the art, there's this gorgeous art in the book of the Lady of Pain and portal yeah. closings and things like that. But it's a little like, how do I make this interesting, which is true of any urban adventure, but this is turned up to 11. And so I'm like immediately I think, oh, does the adventure teach me how to make city stuff yeah. interesting? That's fine. <laughs> And we will find out as we continue our look through this book. Next time, we'll talk a little bit more about factions, uh, talk about the gazetteer that they provide for the city of Sigil itself, and more. Uh, anything to add, Teos, before we head off into the sunset? No. All right. Then I will say thank you, Teos, for sharing your knowledge of the game and of the industry with me and with the rest of us. And I want to thank all our listeners out there for hearing us and some of us, some of them even supporting us monetarily via our Patreon. If you would like to become a patron of the show, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash masteringdnd. We've got three tiers. We've got the Master of Dungeon supporters. Thank you so much for, to all of you. The Master of Realms supporters. Y'all get a listing in our show notes. But the Masters of the Multiverse, the highest level of backer, our Davis, if you will. <laughs> uh, we thank you and we read out your names. Keith Ammon of the Monsters Know What They're Doing. Craig Bailey, Steve Bissonette, Merrick Blackman, Evil John, DM Chad, Darren Chandler, Seth Eckel, Andy Edmonds at Nerdronomicon, Nathan Fuller, The Mighty Jerd, 
Ben Heisler and Paige Lightman. Paige, we're glad you're doing better. Sean Hurst, Chad Jackson, Brian King, Jim Klingler, a.k.a. DM Prime Mover. Chad Lynch, the Mathemagician. Eric Mengi, the Micro Ant. Sean Molly, Falcon Neal. Post Fiction RPG Audio, Robert Paz Pasley. Vladimir Prenner from Croatia. Chance Russo at Drago Russo. Ross Sandberg, Andy Shockney, Krishna Simonse, David Somerville from Prismanics.com, the 5e space opera setting. Joe Tyler, James Walton, and Graham Ward. Thank you for your support. Teos, where can people find you on the interwebs? Ooh, find me at alphastream.org. I posted the last of my articles where I took a guess as scientifically as I could an estimate at what D&D's revenue might be like. Uh, it's created some great conversations. I had some fun talking with folks on Ian World and on the Discord about it. Um, but yeah, now I can put to, to rest my thoughts on the book scan data. It's been a bunch of fun. Um, yeah, and then, and then let's see each other and friends at Gamehole. Sean, where can we find you? Uh, find me at GameholeCon. And just, well, as of this show dropping, I'm there. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin, as well as Mastodon and Blue Sky and all of the other socials. Uh, you can follow the show on all of those places. You can go to YouTube and you can actually leave comments about the show and ask your questions and tell us what we've done right and what we've done wrong. Uh, and, of course, you can always go to the Patreon and give us some support there. Whew. So we're done recording. We know a little bit more about Sigil than we did before. What are we going to do now? Uh, I'm going to hire a tout to help me because, boy, could I use one. Do, do touts do any game design, do you know? I hope so because, boy, I could use some help. And I, I also need some help making rebuses, apparently. <laughs> <laughs>